Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 118. And as many of you know, I missed last week because I was on that Oregon coast ride, and that's something I dive into first in the topics today um, as we talk endurance athletics and nutrition and mindset and approach and training habits and training um, skills with regards to how to put together a good training week. I go into a bunch of emails and so forth that you have sent in in order to give you some answers and insights into this into endurance lifestyle. And the beauty of that Oregon Coast Ride is one of the topics I love talking about so much on this podcast is that endurance adventures, right? Self-curated endurance adventures. I have an email today from somebody who's creating their own endurance adventure by riding their bike almost 100 miles to a 50k that they're doing and then riding back home Um, and then camping there and just making it an adventure again creating something scary creating something curious and that intrigues them to keep you motivated Um, that coast ride perfect example of an endurance adventure is it an event no but It is stimulating and fun and requires fitness and you really can test and put out there where your fitness carries you, how far it carries you. And again, endurance adventures, right? As I was talking to an athlete the other day and he's sort of prepping his 2020 um, year, you know, adventures complemented by races that he, as he described it, he's looking to get ready for a variety of events and He's like, I'm doing the races so that it keeps me motivated, focused on gaining the fitness to take part in the adventures along the way that I'm excited to do. Like he wants to do the coast ride. He wants to, you know, take on a long John Muir Trail hike. He wants to, you know, take in a variety of endurance adventures and he's doing 70.3s and other events along the way in order to keep him fit and strong and focused and motivated to then also throw in the adventures along the way. So a little bit different twist than what we usually do is we do the adventures to get ready for events. He's planning to do the events to get ready for the adventures. And that's basically what we're looking to do, whether on this podcast or with this whole endurance lifestyle. And that is to be fit enough and strong enough and healthy enough and prepared enough and have a base level of fitness that's good enough to jump off the highway of fitness and take the exit ramps into these little areas that are fun adventures and um, great adventures with friends or family or things that uh, spark your curiosity that you've always wanted to do. And that Oregon Coast Ride is an example of that, For right? I've always wanted to ride that. I haven't had a chance to. I've driven it. I've tried to do it at other times. I've ridden parts of it, the Northern California pieces, but I've never strung it all together. Again, taking fitness and applying it to something endurance adventure related. And that's what I try to promote with all of you is what, how can we use the fitness we have, the fitness we build, to do something unique, to do something different. Nothing grandiose, nothing too crazy. But I was talking to an athlete again the other day, and 
you know, he's getting him and his wife pretty fit with regards to running and trail running, and he wants to do Marathon de Sable maybe next year or the year after. He's getting, he's building up his volume, building up a platform. And I was saying, you know, have the fun of doing this with your wife because he was like, I don't want to pressure her or bring her, uh, uh, ramp her up too quickly as well because, you know, she might not be there or in that space yet or has other responsibilities or, you know, her three-legged stool, right? And I said, the beauty of that is even if you guys are at a different level of fitness, create adventures. Think about adventures that you guys can do together that challenge you and challenge her and that you guys can sort of look forward to together. I threw out there, you know, running to a bed and breakfast, running to another town, running to a cool spot on the coast, and then spending the night having a good dinner there, and then running back. It's an amazing adventure. It's a unique adventure. It requires fitness. Now, if he is fitter, or if she is fitter, this is not a he or she question, it's just then that person carries the backpack with the food and the water and the gear. Um, or, you know, the other person doesn't run quite as far, but runs towards you from the bed and breakfast, and they might have driven there, right? So let's say the guy or the girl that doesn't want to go as far, let's say it's a 25-mile run or a 30-mile run or a 15-mile run, and the other person doesn't want to go that far, they bring everything to the bed and breakfast, the little inn, the house that's rented, or the hotel even, and runs towards you. And then that way, you guys both have something to look forward to. It's a fun little endurance adventure weekend. And you do something in a town or a little village that you wouldn't usually explore like that. It's different driving someplace and spending the night. Getting there on your own energy, on a bike or running there or doing some major adventures from that point so that you get to know the landscape and the environment and location better is a unique way to get to discover your neighborhood, your neighborhood, your communities around you, and also the beautiful environment and landscape that some of us have the opportunity to live in. Or if you're curious about a place to do and explore it like that. I talk later on in this podcast about the training camps that I'm doing this year. And one of them is going to be a trail running camp in Telluride. Now, I don't have that much experience of running in Telluride, but I will do the research. I will talk to the locals. I have a couple of local friends that live there and I will put it together so that it's an adventure for all of us. Will it go perfectly? No, but that's where our fitness coming in will provide us with the adventure because our fitness will be beyond the trail running that we're doing and therefore, if things, if we take a wrong turn, or we go longer, or we have to hike more, or if they carry more gear, or if there is no support at the far end of that run, or we don't, or we get somewhere in the water um, source, fountain, campsite, lake, filter doesn't work, um, that we have the ability to figure it out because we're not that exhausted and taxed. That's adventure. And so we'll do clover leaves around Telluride. Yeah, sure, altitude, but beautiful weather, beautiful location, beautiful huts, beautiful um, um, places to explore, beautiful views and mountains and vistas and the whole input. 
and an adventure for all of us. And to come back every night and sit around a table and be like, that day was amazing. We experienced this and we saw that. That's what I love. Camps like that, creating community, creating memories, creating experiences that we build through fitness. And so that'll be Telluride. I'm still working on the dates for that. Um, But, you know, there will be that every year for the next few years because that's truly how I love to experience um, our endurance with others and sharing it with others. And that's what I do with Emily. I mean, when we look at our calendar and think of the things we want to do, we surely look at it from that same perspective. Um, We want to go to Patagonia this year, whether it was um, this year with my injuries in Qatar, it didn't quite happen, but um, we're going to go in April. And yeah, sure, we can go to Patagonia and hike and check it out without doing an event. But we're also like excited to see part of that country that we usually wouldn't see. And so we're going to do a 100 miler there. Now, travel in, have a beautiful race in a beautiful terrain. And then guess what? After a couple of days, hopefully, because our fitness will be good enough, we'll be hiking, we'll be checking it out, we'll be check out the culture, we'll check out the environment around it, but we'll have just seen a hundred miles in nature and openness and vastness and in a new location in a beautiful part of the world. And we'll have all that stimulus and be able to apply our fitness and do that together in a unique way in a part of the world that I love and I am so excited to learn more about. So, yeah, so that's this week on the Weekly Word Podcast. What are we going to talk about? We're going to I go into some emails. One is about a sub-nine Ironman, what it takes for somebody who did their first Ironman and went pretty fast. I talk about um, diving into multiple events and having fitness to take on multiple adventures and events. Um, of course, I start off talking about the Oregon Coast Ride. I talk about missing workouts and why that's important to not overthink it and create an anxiety and stress around and try to put the puzzle piece back in on on another day. Um, That never works out great and how to work our way around that. And what else do I talk about? I talk about getting faster in zone two and not the usual way by slowing down, by actually having to speed up and what that means. And as I mentioned, I talk about that uh, ride to a 50K and ride back and how to train for that and what we're looking to do. So enjoy this week's podcast. I hope you uh, get a good sense of endurance adventures and that theme this week on the podcast episode 118. Thank you. So Portland to San Francisco, what an amazing trip. And what a unique trip and one I've been looking forward to for a while. I've driven that and scouted it driving. But, you know, when you're doing it quickly, driving at 60 miles an hour, you don't feel it the same way. And, of course, the undulations and the climbs and the descents and the tailwind and the headwind and how the coast and the redwoods and the trees and then coming out into the open all affects you. And so it's a pretty exciting experience to not only venture out onto new roads and a curated um, endurance adventure, which this truly was. I mean, six days 
averaging 125 miles, 123, excuse me, a day, and, you know, getting in seven-ish hours in the saddle, six and a half to seven every single day for six days was pretty awesome. Um, And again, it requires everything that endurance adventures, um, the ingredients are for that. And that is, you know, long days, having to be very smart and fueling right and smart with regards to effort and output and sleep and getting off the bike or getting done with your daily activity and thinking about recovery and rebuilding and regenerating for the next six and a half to seven and a half hour day. Um, Some days being harder, some days not necessarily being easier, but less tax on the body, less climbing, but then prepping for the bigger days, elements, weather, um, lack of sleep, new beds, all kinds of different things. So it truly was an endurance adventure. But for me, also so valuable because, you know, I know the California coast ride, like the back of my hand, right? Um, I've done it, I think, 34, 35 times. It might even be into 40 in the meantime. There were years I did it three times a year, four times a year, Um whether taking clients down, whether prepping for Kona, what I would often do is I would do, not often, but what I did a few times was do a coast ride three days from San Francisco to Santa Barbara. So I'd get my 100 to 115, 120 miles in a day, and then I'd run off the bike every day, you know, anywhere from four to 10 miles. Um, If it was an easier day, meaning not less in distance, but easier in terrain, less climbing, I would uh, do a longer run. And if it was a hard day like Big Sur with a lot of climbing and a lot of distance, um, I would do a short run off the bike, four-ish to six-ish miles. But the great thing is, for example, on day two, you do Big Sur, and then you saw a lot of elevation gain, a lot of stimulus, a lot of beauty. Then you come into Morro Bay, and you're pretty tired, but you have a good six miles of beautiful flat hard-packed sand coastline that you can run on as the sun sets. You know, doing it in September, you don't have a sunset until like 7.38. So you have some time to get in some fluids and some fuel, get off that, well, I think that day is like 123 miles. You get off and you do your run and it's beautiful in the sand as the sun setting. Afternoon, people walking dogs. It's just, it's a powerful day experience. And one, when you have fitness, it's memorable, right? That's, those are the workouts that I remember for the rest of my life um, because they're so impactful in its beauty and its um, extremeness, right? Like you're out there for seven hours on the bike and then you're going to do an hour and a half run or an hour and 15 minute run. So an eight and a half hour training day, you remember those. <laughs> so, but anyway, Oregon. Um, so it was beautiful because I was touching new terrain every pedal stroke. And while I did remember some turns and some corners and some towns from having driven it, uh, that was two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago when I was prepping to bring a bigger group down the coast in July. And that didn't come to fruition. Um, this year, this opportunity really was um, a new adventure for me and something where, you know, it wasn't a question, can I do it? But it was more a question of what's around the next turn? What's around the next bend? What will present itself today? Um, How will this day go with regards to forests and redwoods and giant trees and rugged coastline and elephant seals and uh, sea lions and 
beautiful, beautiful coast. And what kind of climbing is it? How steep is it? You don't feel that as much when you're just driving it. Sure, you say, oh, this looks like a solid hill. And I wonder what it'll feel like cycling it. But I didn't get to cycle it like that. Now, of course, once I got into Northern California, Fort Bragg, Crescent City, Eureka, that area I've actually ridden before. Uh, but again, many years ago, and it's not some place you frequently get to. Um, I've maybe ridden that area twice. Um, this will be the third time. So um, I remember that the terrain is hard, but again, nothing that you remember specifically, especially on the third, uh, fourth and fifth and sixth day of a coast ride like that. So yeah, overall, just an, a really beautiful experience. I'm super excited to take others down the coast and show them this raw beauty, this raw terrain. Um, it's different than the California Coast Drive because it's emptier, meaning the space between towns and cities um, is greater. The California Coast Drive is just more populated. You go through some very remote areas, of course, like Big Sur and stuff, but you're not far from um, the next town or the next bigger community. And so Cal Oregon, Southern Oregon, Northern California there was just pretty remote. And, um, you know, you see some poverty with it. You see some old logging communities that no longer, uh, you know, have that income stream. So you go some, through some pretty rough terrain and it's not an easy coast ride. And I say that and I can't really put a finger on it. Why? But for some reason, it just is harder. Now, maybe I'm not in the, the shape of a coast drive, but usually in January, I'm not in the shape either for the California coast drive. Now, maybe it's because I didn't know where to apply my energy in the California coast ride. I know every inch, so I know where to go easy, where it, where I need to push in order to get through the day and the time I allot myself with regards to sweeping through and making sure everybody's safe. Um, so it's different. I had probably was inefficient in my energy output on the Oregon coast ride. But again, it was an adventure. I went with two great buddies who um, <clears throat> were a joy to ride with and uh, goof around with and have fun with. And one of our buddies couldn't make it last second. So it would have been four of us. But yeah. The fitness required for this one is a little bit higher and also the remoteness of the terrain and the, where we're riding. I would also push for a little bit higher level of fitness for athletes that want to join. Nothing crazy, but again, you're in you know, some of the biggest logging communities and areas in the country. And so there's a lot of logging trucks. Sometimes there's uh, narrower roads so that they, that can freak you out. And although it's empty and it's not like traffic jammed, um, you know, it was October, not very busy up there at that time. Like I wouldn't want to do it in July or August when the weather's warmer and there's a lot more tourists on that stretch. But still, it's um, it accumulates to being a very difficult ride. Now, the challenge becomes too is, you know, three, four days, you can do that at 125 miles a day it's then five and six being the hardest days with regards to 10,000 feet of climbing and 9,000 feet of climbing that really eat you up when um when when for these long days um 
Again, California Coast Ride, you can ma- navigate through where, where it's flatter and tailwinds and sort of making your way through the day. This one is a lot more exposed and you have a lot more work. And you don't have that cutoff day in between. And what I mean by that is like Santa Barbara Day is like uh, Santa Barbara to Santa Monica Day is 95 miles. So it's a quicker, easier day. Um, first day leaving San Francisco and going over the Golden Gate Bridge, the first two, three hours are pretty easy because you're, it's pretty mellow, city, suburbia, you got to get out of the city. I mean, you're on the coast, it's beautiful, but still, it's a mellower pace. Here, um, oftentimes, the first pedal stroke, you're on it. You're, you're, you're pretty exposed and you're just heading down the coast. But again, you're rewarded with beauty and incredible views. And then this avenue of the giants and the giant redwood trees, oh my gosh, it was spectacular you have to figure riding for 45 ish miles straight through redwoods never departing really from these giant redwoods on both sides sure it's cold and and darker in there but it was such a beautiful powerful awe-inspiring sight and makes you feel tiny especially on a bike in these giant redwoods and you can feel the air and you can feel the energy and you can feel the oxygen that these groves and this microclimate of these huge redwood groves creates it was fantastic so i hope hope i can share that corner of the world on a bike with many many people because i truly enjoyed it i definitely want to go back and i want to i will and i want i will um, add it to my annual uh, list of offerings with regards to coast rides with regards to training camps running camps and so forth so this oregon to san francisco is just a beautiful piece the only piece left is you know seattle to oregon along that coast so i'll have to venture out and see what when we'll do that to make sure those rides are beautiful and effective and fun and can be sagged and the distances are realistic and can be done. So, um, but that's down the road. But yeah, otherwise main observations from that coast ride was, you know, the fueling, you gotta be on it when you're in the saddle six and a half to seven hours a day, missing a few hours or not having a good dinner or breakfast, it leaves you flat and moody and impatient and annoyed with your fitness or annoyed with the other riders or um, just you know you're cranky and being on it with fluids and fuel especially fuel with that type of demand 40 hours of cycling in six days it really hits you and so um, yeah fueling is a big thing you're you you seem to sleep pretty well um, despite you know your body working and regenerating and so forth but and then the other part is the fitness and that what I mean by that is not that you come in with this outstanding fitness but it's more how you conserve and apply your energy over six to seven hours a day and that saddle doesn't get more comfortable <laughs> not magically more comfortable and so it's a question of not necessarily checking your ego it's not that bad again there were three of us it's not like we were checking our ego or throwing our ego out there back and forth but being willing to recognize and say or pull back and just be like you know what this is my go all day pace right now on the bike and i have a lot of miles ahead of me and i'm not going to push it 
I'm not going to risk it. I don't want to feel miserable. I don't want to be in a hole that makes this experience um, more a survival versus thriving, right? Like we said, thrive, not survive. And for me, that was surely day one. I mean, there were a couple of times where Freddie and Taylor sort of look back and they're like, what's going on? Why is Chris slowing down, falling back? A, I was still working on my fitness out of the second rib injury, but still, I was also trying to be conservative. I wanted to be smart from the first pedal stroke because I didn't know what lies ahead and what kind of work lies ahead and how I'll feel lying ahead. The part in endurance events for any of us, whether we're running 100 miles, 50 miles, 25 miles, when we're cycling, whether we're cycling a you know gravel grinder for 100 miles or 80 miles, it also takes six, eight hours to long swims, to triathlons. It's We're not knowing how we'll feel in two, three, four hours from now and five, six, seven hours from now. That is the great unknown. And so as you're doing any of these events or training, but especially when you're in the event itself, the race, you want to keep in mind that what am I doing now to ensure that I will be prepared for four, five, six hours from now? What am I doing now to make sure that I'm successful and feel good and still enjoying this day and event in four, five, six hours from now? I have the same thing with 29029 coming up next week in Vermont. Um, you know, that I'll be talking to the participants and athletes there. The main thing for a 30-hour event is eating and fueling. And although you don't want to now, it's about and what am I doing now to prepare myself for 3 a.m., for 9 a.m. tomorrow when I'm still moving and I still need to be moving to get as many ascents as possible? How am I taking care of myself now? Although I don't feel like I need to, how am I taking care of myself now at mile 40 on the bike for so that when mile 100 or 110 comes around, I'm not completely miserable? And of course, there's natural fatigue and there's natural um, you know, breakdown of the body when you're on the saddle and riding and mechanically doing something that long. But there's definitely the fueling and the hydration was so obvious. I would hit a point where at like 40 to 50 miles where it's like, ugh, I'm not even halfway of the day. And of course, the days are beautiful and there's a stimulus. But of course, that also... Um, wears off not that it goes away but you're still sort of like all right more redwoods great more beautiful coastal vistas great just get me there <laughs> but it would always be all right you know chris you gotta start eating now because if you're feeling like this now just think what you're gonna feel like at 85 or 90 the beauty was that i noticed for myself over many days if i got to 90 ish i was home free because the last 25, 30 seem to just sort of flow. You're just not numb, but you're in neutral and you're just sort of by default pedaling away and the legs just sort of carry you. It's the middle miles, 40 to 80, um, 40 or 50 to 90, where you're sort of in no man's land. You're like, I've pedaled long enough that I'm somewhat fatigued, but I'm sort of somewhat fatigued and I still have to do 70 more miles, 75 more miles. That's when it wears on you mentally. And that's the game. That's the game that we all in endurance athletics struggle with. 
It's further with regards to how we're feeling in the now to comprehend how we'll feel in the future. But it's also not far enough to where we feel like, okay, I shouldn't be feeling like this because I've already gone so far. When we've done 90 to 100 miles and we're not feeling great, whether it's cycling or it's running, not 100 miles, but you know what I mean, you actually have your subconscious sort of saying, all right, well, I've done 100 miles. I should be tired. Um, and I'm almost there. When you're 45 miles, 50 miles in, you're like, I'm not even halfway. I'm tired. I wonder what I'll feel like in three hours from now if I'm already tired now. That's when we create this this story in our mind and get down on ourselves. And it's a great time to fuel, hydrate, reset, body scan, and slow down and just gradually reconnect with ourselves and wind it back up. Do a little bit of a gratitude thing, realizing the uniqueness and beauty of this, but also realizing, especially on a bike tour like this, a bike trip, bike ride like this, um, I don't call it a tour, I'm very specific about that, um, that you sort of know, all right, this is awesome and I have nowhere to be. So relax, slow down a bit, reset, fuel up, take it all in for a few minutes and then go, ah, that's right, I have nowhere to be. All I need to do today is ride my bike and get to the destination. And once you sort of surrender to that, surrender to this is all I'm doing today. I'm in no hurry. When we ride long at home, it's like, I got to get home. I got to get to the soccer tournament. I got to ride home. I got to get work done. I got to ride, get home, get this bike ride. Not on long bike rides like this, where it's multiple days. This is all you have to do. And it's one of the most rewarding parts of multi-day events, whether it's running, whether it's um, a multi-sport, whether it's cycling, is that all you have to do is wake up, get on your bike, Take in the beauty. You're doing it while you're exercising, while you're training, and go to bed and fuel and hydrate. So, yeah, but that's the overall, the California, the Oregon Coast Ride. Some great spots Some from Portland to um, Newport was a great little town. Bandon was a great little town. Um, Crescent City was a great little town. Fortuna was a great little town. We had all kinds of great spots and uh, really enjoyed it. So that was the coast ride. And uh, yeah, I was excited to share that with all of you because I'm excited to share the trip, the entire ride with all of you. I'm starting to formulate all the um, events this year with regards to training camps and so forth. And I will definitely be organizing two coast rides. I just announced today that uh, the January Coast Ride, the California Coast Ride, and man, it almost filled up <laughs> the first day of emails. I'm taking 25 down the coast. That's sort of a sweet spot number. And I think I have 23 people who've already, not signed up, but expressed interest or said I'm in. But it's January 17th to the 20th. We go to Santa Monica Pier this year. So from the Golden Gate Bridge to the Santa Monica Pier, Four days, January 17th to the 20th. The 20th is a holiday, so you can fly out that afternoon um, in L.A. and only miss one day of work. Um, we leave Friday morning, so that's the day you technically miss work unless you're flying in from far away, and you'll probably need Thursday as well. But most 
come in Thursday afternoon. We have a fun dinner, and then everybody gets to sort of meet them, and meet themselves, meet each other, <laughs> and then uh, off we go Friday morning, and we get there uh, Monday afternoon. Have some um, food, uh, some shuttles to the airport or Uber these days is even better, um, and then they fly or most athletes fly out of LAX and they're back home, um, either red eye or stay on the coast um, that evening, and then that's that. So. Yeah, if you're interested, feel free to send me an email. All levels come on the California Coast Drive. We have SAG, um, not necessarily behind you the whole time, but we move your bags for you. We have SAG spots where when you get there, we have all kinds of food and drink and equipment and gear. You can shed gear because you're hot because the mornings are cold, but by mid-morning, you want to shed some clothes. And so we have aid stops and stations and um, check-ins sag spots there and then we usually have another one sort of halfway beyond that and then of course the finish line where you're every day where your bags are waiting for you and your hotel and yeah and then we rinse and repeat for four days so um yeah so send me an email if you're interested in that and now most of that's on the website of course as well then i am going to do the oregon coast ride i'm thinking september after Labor Day um, 2020. So those dates will come. But um, even if I just go with five or six people again, I am definitely doing that coast ride again. That was beautiful. I have that um, spring training camp in Sonoma and Marin. And that's more triathlon specific. Um, That's in the latter half of April. I think it's the 16th through the 19th. So 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th, four days, basically three and a half days of training, one half day sort of to get you to and from the airport and stuff like that. And then um, I'm looking to do a trail running camp in Telluride this summer. So details will come on that. That's sort of newer. And then lastly, I am planning on a swim camp. Um, You know, two and a half days of intensive swimming, pool swimming with some open water, I have so many athletes um, that ask for swimming help. And so I just wanted to put it all together in one spot right there and uh, offer that here in Marin. Now, of course, you'd have to fly in or drive in to make that work. And I will make it as affordable and as easy as possible. But we definitely want to offer that as well as some nutrition work at all of them via Emily and so forth. So those four, five things are happening in 2020. So send me emails if you're interested in any of them. I know I have a bunch of my military guys and Coast Guard guys that I want to bring in and gals coming in from um, from where they're stationed. So it'll be fun to get a variety of different athletes and people with different interests, backgrounds, whether it's military or getting ready for ultra endurance swims or for triathlons all together in the pool and work together for a weekend arrive Thursday afternoon, swim Friday morning, Friday afternoon, uh, Saturday morning, Saturday evening, and get people on the road Sunday, or even, let's say, a Friday afternoon, first session Saturday, double sessions, a session Sunday morning, and people on the road Sunday afternoon. But, you know, a lot of video, a lot of instruction, some underwater work, some uh, um, strength work in the water, yeah, Um, treading water, and ankle flexibility for better kick, wetsuit, um, 
tips and insights, open water stuff. So overall, anything that we may need. And it, of course, it's dependent on who is coming to the camp. I don't look at these clinics as big numbers. It's more about eight, seven to eight to 10 people for maximum value. And again, they're not always easy to get to. And so therefore, I respect if, if only five or six people show up. It is what it is. And I just want to make sure I'm helping as much as I can with some tips and technique and insights and takeaways so that you go back to your training grounds or facilities and ha are armed with a variety of things that you can do to get better and to continue to progress as an endurance athlete. So send me an email on anything, any one of these events rides, camps, clinics that you would be interested in because they'll give me a good sense along from my athletes, of course, being at many of these, give me a good sense of what you, uh, of the numbers and what you might want and include in these and who is coming. So I hope, uh, I hope those, those types of, uh, clinics and events, um, get some following, not because that I need to do them, but more that it's a fun way to create a community in our endurance world here. So well, you fuel yourself after the workout when you're not training, that is the key. So many athletes who are wanting to become better, have better performance outcomes, who want to think of themselves as athletes, which I'm all for. Remember, I hugely believe being an athlete is a mindset. But if you're going to approach it with that mindset, it's all about what you do between the training sessions, between the workouts, after, before, and in the remaining time in between the sessions. That makes you an athlete. Anybody can go out and train. Anybody can go out and do the workouts as prescribed, right? Because there's a, it's there. It's written for you. It makes sense. But how you treat yourself after, how you prepare for before, and what I'm talking about is nutrition and fueling and hydrating and regeneration and sleep, and in some cases, stretching and body work and care. It's exercising. If you just go to a workout or open the app or look at your workout, 10 minutes prior to the workout and go out and do it. Great. That's exercising. That's not thoughtful. That's not intentional. That's not with clarity and purpose. That's not being an athlete. Being an athlete is knowing how to prepare yourself best for the next training session for maximum absorption. Again, what we're talking about here is your ability as a full-time working athlete. You went pro in something else, so we have to maximize the limited training time. And you have kids, you have a family, you have work, you have all kinds of responsibilities. And here you are not taking care of yourself or doing it right and something you can control. Fueling and hydrating is something you can control. That does not take world-class expertise. It takes you just going out to the store or being thoughtful in how much you're fueling. There's not a week that goes by that I don't see athletes under fueling, not realizing how much they're burning in their long training sessions. 
and how much they need to just get back to par, plus a night's sleep, and then they have a minimal breakfast before their next session. The biggest aspect I always see with endurance training is how well you take yourself, take care of yourself between sessions. Those athletes that are, because remember, they're thoughtful in between sessions because they're also clearly then thoughtful for the sessions, which closes the circle for them, right? They're constantly thinking, am I doing something now to ensure that I'm going to be good, better, stronger, faster for my next session? How am I progressing from yesterday? How am I progressing for tomorrow? And part of that, and a big component of that, is what you do between the sessions. How well I slept, how well I fueled, how well I hydrated, how well I regenerated my body in order to absorb the next session. I get questions all the time. What kind of quality will we be doing? What kind of this will I do I need to do? What kind of distances do we? I don't know. I don't know because until the athlete shows me that they can actually absorb the training, I'm not just going to give you junk miles. Hey, you need 10 hours of running this week. You need four hours of running. You need 16 hours of cycle, whatever. doesn't mean anything if you're not absorbing and growing. So for you, maybe it's four hours of training a week. If you're absorbing that well and you're progressing, that's plenty. This isn't about more. It's about smarter, better, and maximizing the limited training time we have. What I saw last week on the coast ride, six days of seven to eight hour days, right? Six and a half to seven and a half hours in the saddle is that I knew I was taking care of my body to get stronger and more consistent every day. No, the watts weren't good going up <laughs> that many miles in, but I felt better and better every day. I woke up ready to go and ride another 125 miles on my bike. Sure, you get achy in the saddle, and sure, your shoulders get achy sitting on that bike position, and sure, your lower back. But again, prepping, eating, fueling, hydrating, as soon as I was off the bike, prepping body and sleep and fuel and hydrating for the next day, seven and a half hours in the saddle, and the next day, seven hours in the saddle, and the next day, seven hours in the saddle. That can only be done with thoughtful, purposeful, clarity. And guess what? It's not about getting to the training camp or the big endurance adventure or a big training week and then applying that. I know for many months and years, obviously a couple decades of this training, how I need to prepare myself for that event, how to rest for it, how to get sleep for it. I can still train, but I'm backing off. I'm preparing for the big load. I'm eating smarter for the big load. Emily had me prepped, um, I would say about a week, five days in advance because we went to LA. But already before LA, she was prepping meals differently. You need to be prepared for the load on your body there. And then, of course, she also cooked me some things and prepped some things for me to take along for recovery, food and fuels and supplements and so forth. But the point is, it's thoughtful and intentional. We can all do this. Not just because I have Emily next to me. It's more that I have a big load coming up next week. How am I preparing for that? But many of you, it's about the weekend. 
How am I coming into the weekend? How am I fueling for the weekend? And then taking a big Saturday and then realizing, you know what? That was a 5,000 calorie burn day. You know, a four-hour bike ride is about 3,000 to 4,000 calories burn for people. Maybe a little bit less for women, but not much. 2,800 to 3,500. Now add to it the 2,000 calories that you need, or minimum, females, um, and guys up to 3,000 because our metabolism is moving quicker from the, all the training we're doing already. Now, you just burn 3,000, 3,500, plus your daily needs of 2,500, let's say, middle of the road. That's a 6,000 calorie burn day. Do you know how hard it is to eat 6,000 calories when you already are training four or five hours? So you have a remaining, with eight hours of sleep, you have a remaining 12 hours to eat 6,000 calories. That's hard to do. So therefore, it's important to constantly keep things at a good level, at a quality fueling level. And so, yeah, of course you don't keep up on Saturday because that's just too hard to do. So let's say you only get in 4,000 that day. Now you're at a 2,000 calorie deficit. Do you know how smart you need to be at breakfast on Sunday if you have another big training day, a swim, bike, run, whatever, or all three or two of the three? You need to have a big breakfast in order to, over the evening, over the night, your body used calories to regenerate, re, re, rebuild itself. Now... If you don't have a big breakfast, you're basically in deficit from the day before, in deficit from the night, and then you're going to go into a workout with not enough fuel, in deficit again. Now it causes serious long-term effects, fatigue, sleepiness, um, lack of training absorption, and we're back to square one. So the point here is keep in mind, what am I doing between workouts in order to ensure I'm having the best future outcome to not only execute the training, like I said, anybody can execute the training, but am I executing the training so that I'm adapting, absorbing it, so it works for me, me, only me. I don't care how it works for 20 other people, for me. It takes listening to our body, it takes fueling, regenerating sleep, all that hydration. But all that creates a formula and understanding that that is what you do in between the workouts. And again, like I said, all of this is controllable. It's controllable. It's there for you to do successfully. And the other part on that deficit and that fatigue, that doesn't show itself on Monday or Tuesday. That shows itself on Thursday, Friday, or the following weekend, and you crash hard. You crash, you're tired, you're flat, you're, and you don't, you never look back 48 hours or 72 hours to what you just did on why you're flat. Look back 10 to 12 days, overexerting, overdoing it, calorie deficit, going longer than you planned, getting lost and stuck cycling for an extra two, three hours without fuel, things like that. Of course that happens, but then recognize it, learn to recognize it in the moment or when you're done, or when you reflect on your training, or like I have a lot of my athletes do, their rest day reflection, where I want them to think about their training the last week, what they observed, what could have gone better, what could have gone worse, things like that. That's where we capture it. It's like, oh, yeah, I got to take care of myself because of something that went wrong last week. Whether it was our, on our, our, our fault or not, or controllable or not, it doesn't matter. But going forward, how am I getting better? How am I progressing to being a better athlete tomorrow?
So that's a very, very important component to keep in mind. I get a lot of questions about how to train for multiple events. And I would say in many cases, those multiple events always tie back into trail running, uh, triathlon, long bike rides, mountain bike adventures, uh, you know, obviously swimming as well. But when you tie in all three of those sports, that's basically the fundamentals of what we're looking at for ultra endurance events, adventures, expeditions, some sort of cycling, mountain bike, gravel, even, and road cycling, um, trail running, straight up running, um, mountain trail running, which is different than trail running uh, just because of the amount of hiking and um, supported and unsupported with regards to weight on your back and multi-days out there, whether it's camping or straight through. So mountain running is a little bit different, requires a bit more strength. And as I've talked about with regards to the um, calf recruitment and engagement and glutes and the fatigue that happens there. And then, of course, putting all three together with with uh, a triathlon, ultra endurance triathlons, ultra man triathlon, multi day triathlons, you know, um, as in Ultraman or the newer events that are still coming out. And there's, of course, DECA and uh, uh, five time Ironmans and stuff like that. Five time meaning five in a row or the distances of five at once. Um, all that. <laughs> I've been through it all with regards to coaching. But back to the original point, the challenge lies in how do I stay fit, strong, connected, progressing um, through those events and still have goals in other events, whether it's organized events or moving into different spaces. And that's what I always say. One, is, uh, The big piece in there is to maintain a strength component. And my biggest changes, um, growth, um, learning, um, observation over probably the last five to seven years in the multi-sport world is the strength component. It is becoming more and more clear to me how important a solid strength component is. And those that have known me for many years, 10, 15 years, um, I used to not be as tied into it. Um, I knew and I did apply strength often in the preseason slash off season, um, but not as much during the season. And my argument used to be that strength, um, if it is your limiter, then we'll address it. But many athletes I felt were strong enough already to, uh, you know, continue to progress in their respective sport, discipline, desired goals, outcomes that strength was not necessarily needed um, during the season and we needed to maximize our limited training time, right? So, but in the meantime, as I've progressed, um, grown, um, but also um, my focus has transitioned into a bigger array of endurance adventures, not just triathlon and marathons and a few 50Ks and 50 milers, it has highlighted more the importance of you can't train those distances. You can't train, you know, getting ready for a 100 miler running 60, 70 miles at once. You can't train for a multi-day adventure 
by doing the distance, right? Um, it's the same argument that I have with regards to my marathon training. You don't train the distance. You don't run 26 miles on, on a training day and pay on pavement. I actually don't even believe you need to run more than 20 miles on pavement. If it depends again on your desired outcomes and goals and how, you know, if you're looking to break three hours and be pretty competitive, yeah, you know, 21, 22 miles and really testing your fitness, but not all of it being fast, maybe components of it. Like I, I have a personal um, preference of liking eight mile builds with let's say two mile recoveries. So that's uh, 20 miles right there if you do that twice through and then a warm down. Um, but that being said, as the event gets longer and as we're not actually able to do the distance, I feel that strength and chassis integrity and overall um, body uh, strength is so important, A, to maintain the, um, the connections within the body, cartilage, meniscus, um, joints, and of course, muscle, muscular structure, but also to handle the pounding of the work that we do. And so, yeah, strength has become a big component and why I also think it's important that as we're looking to do multi-day adventures or we're looking to branch out and do other adventures while we're getting ready for, let's say, organized events, that strength needs to be a big component. And when I say big component, weekly, right? Once a week, twice a week is, is totally fine. Um, and that's what I do in my own training. I keep a steady dose of strength going as I go through my entire year. Has nothing to do with age, has more to do with um, two factors. One, I'm always applying and testing and modifying and um, experimenting with a variety of strength programs and so and how to best utilize that and apply that to my athletes since I've done it myself or again to keep that integrity to keep that strong body to avoid injuries to um, maintain that power uh, especially out on the trails or on the bike that is really deep rooted below the surface of fitness and those of you that have done whether my strength program or a good solid endurance strength training program, because there is a difference between endurance strength training and regular strength training, you know what I'm talking about. You know that you're sort of on a climb, let's say on your bike, and you realize after a few minutes of climbing like that you feel very connected and smooth and powerful and um, have a lot of leverage in your seated climbing. You feel really connected and powerful and steady and relaxed and breathing deeply um, yet effectively on a long climb or hike while running. And those are the things, or swimming, that you really maintain your technique and your form and your power through some long swim sets. That's where swimming highlights itself. Um, I haven't been able to do strength probably... Well, all of August, all of September, <clears throat> because of the injuries, <clears throat> excuse me, and not necessarily that I missed it, because uh, <laughs> I don't miss being indoors in a gym, but I definitely missed the connecting to my body in that way. But I will say that I've noticed to this day, whether it was on the Oregon Coast Ride 
or at Alaska Man, or also in a variety of other ways that the strength component of this past year really worked well for me of keeping myself from overuse or over um, load injuries, right? I had my injuries due to <laughs> stupid bike crashes, but nothing due to wear and tear or loading too much. And I do attribute a focused strength plan to the ability to do that. So back to that original question, how do you go about doing multiple events um, and maintaining that? And that is twofold. One, that strength component that you integrate into your training. And two, I would really, really focus on having a repeatable format of a aerobic platform, of a fitness platform that you feel really good about executing, growing, and progressing from. So let's say maybe that's a Tuesday, Friday strength component, nothing long, 45 to 60 minutes, with an afternoon run or an afternoon spin or an afternoon swim, and then working around Wednesday and Thursday and Saturday and Sunday. Sunday, Saturday and Sunday is usually being an endurance component because you want to maintain connection to your endurance ability. And then Wednesday and Thursday being your quality, more focused, higher intensity component. If you have a week structured around that, where I just mentioned uh, at least eight workouts, you are talking about having a platform that you then, as I like to say, can get off the exit ramp of the highway of endurance fitness and branch off into smaller adventures, um, curiosity, um, when friends ask you to do something, um, when opportunities arise um, due to weather or location, that you can take advantage of any of these type of endurance endeavors or adventures, or even if it's not endurance, but that you're strong enough to go on a hike. Like uh, on a side note, I have an athlete that I just noticed. He's newer and he started with me a couple weeks ago. But what's really cool is he just sort of ventured out and said, I want to, you know, capture all the peaks over 4,000 feet, nothing dramatic in New Hampshire, I think it is. Um, I think there's 28 of them or something like that. And so he said, you know, I want to bag all these peaks, um, whether it's hiking or running or however it is, in his entire state. So, I mean, just little things like that. Once again, creating, curating your own adventures, doing it with friends, hopefully, and using the fitness that you work on in a fun, motivating, um, rewarding way that it keeps you engaged in this base level of fitness that I'm talking about. And so when you veer off the highway and you're on that side road that you have that fitness and that strength and that ability and that um, durability to do whatever you want on that side road. And then eventually, as you're um, done with that side adventure, visiting that small town off the highway, you get back on the highway and are steaming, moving towards your ultimate goal for the season, your A race or your your penultimate um, focus for the season. And so that's what I would always recommend. I would recommend a strength component and a good repeatable format that you can tweak with volume and adjustment 
but repeatable um, so that you can think about how you're progressing your training versus what you're doing on which day because you already know that in each component um, because of the structure you set up. So I get a lot of questions about that and that probably answers like four or five emails at once. But um, yeah, keep that in mind. All right, a variety of emails here. I have some older ones I'm going through, um, but I'm going to try to bust a bunch out here. Um, hey, Chris, could you talk about an elite 100 kilometer run plan which has double run days 16 week build so i'm not sure if this is a question about um, a true training plan that i usually discuss on the podcast let's say a 16 week build where i talk one to four five to eight and so forth or just the concepts here again keep this real quick and uh, focused that is 100k a 60 mile run you know, I would focus 100% my builds on getting that 60 miles in a shorter and shorter window. So it might take you 10 days at the start of the 16 weeks to get in 60 miles. And then sort of after a four-week build, it might only take you four days. And then I would reset to a point where, you know, I get the 60 miles in in eight days and build in that four weeks to that I get it in in three days. Um, and then, you know, grow from there. But you definitely want to get to a point, let's say 12 weeks into the plan, um, where you're doing 60 miles, basically in as short of a window as possible. And that is the our typical, what have we said? Um, you know, in this case, a 60 mile or 100K, I would probably look to do about 40 miles on one day and the day prior, maybe in the afternoon, 15 miles. And the next day after the 40 miler, another, uh, you know, 10 miles. So now you've done 65 miles in basically 36 hours. You're ready, right? And then recover from that and so forth. I have an athlete currently, she did a 55K as a training day as she's getting ready for 100K. And um, we came into it a little bit rested because again if you're not rested you don't recover as quickly so you don't want to be shelled then do when you put your simulation or training day in as a race um, a lot of athletes think they're going to train through it in the format of you know just do the regular week and then make that their long run i don't like to do that and i, I would recommend against that because when it's a bigger load, a bigger stress, let's say in this case it's a big training day slash big training week, I would want us to be able to recover quickly in order to move on with our adaptation, absorbing of the training. And so I would put a lighter week in there, not fully light, not fully rested. I would still do strength that week and do some quality, but um, maybe an extra rest day and uh, lighten up on the load a little bit on the days prior. Not a question of the intensity, but how many repeats or how long that intensity workout is. And then maybe a day or two off after the race so that coming in your body's rebuilding, regenerating, it has the big stress load of the event and then quickly two days of recovery. But because you were rested, you weren't broken down that much it wasn't that far off the spectrum of what you're currently training then quickly recover and then right back into your training week so this athlete she did her 55k up at altitude um pretty big mountainous terrain crested butte did uh, her work during the week 
rested a little bit, got out of it, healthy, quickly recovered, took good care of her body. And then from there, we built into the week. Of course, the first few days were easier and we were careful. But then by the weekend, she was back up to, I think, a total of 40 miles or 50 miles of running for the week. Um, so we ramped up quickly and we hit Friday, Saturday, Sunday, almost like a regular training week. So something to keep in mind. But in this case, yeah, elite or not, it's just a question of how closely, how quickly, and how tightly you are winding up that 100K in, in how many days. And again, I would not say that an elite plan or a basic plan is much different. It's more a question of how fast you're running at that um, elite plan versus the volume. And you know, maybe a little bit more risky on the quantity, uh, quality that you're doing because you hopefully have a platform and a chassis and ligaments and pounding in your body that can handle the extra quality. But overall, I do by hours. The hours would be about the same. Um, so, and then the question was uh, double run days. Yeah, I mean, double run days are great, as we know, for um, increasing volume, right? You could run in the morning, run in the evening. I definitely like the um, building up the multiple runs in order to get in the volume. Like I was saying with that example, maybe not a 40 mile run because that's, you know, a full day. But that you use your weekends, whatever your weekends are, and say, all right, Friday afternoon, I'll use the, the typical weekend as an example. I'm going to run 15, right? That's close to three hours, or that's usually around three hours on trails, three and a half, depending on how hilly. So then the next morning, short rest, because you're doing that after work. So you maybe have eight hours of rest. <clears throat> Body isn't fully recovered, but the running you're doing is of good sound quality versus just slogging along. The next morning, I would probably look to do about six hours of running. So maybe from 7 a.m. to 1. So in six hours, you can get in uh, um, close to a 50K. So let's say it's 25 miles or 25 to 30 miles. Let's say so 25 plus the 15 the night before. Now we're at 40 miles in 24 hours. Then rest for two, three hours and do another 90 minutes at night. So that's another, let's say, nine miles. So now we're at... um almost 50 miles, more, a little bit more than 50 miles because of the six hours, it's more than 25 miles. We're at 50 miles of running in basically 24, 26 hours of, run, uh, of time. And that is a huge load. And if you can do that effectively running with good form, connected, of course, you're going to be tired. But doing it effectively so that you feel like you're maintaining the pace, the energy levels, the alertness that you want to see in training, as well as in racing, that is, that's awesome right there. And then use Sunday, either as recovery, as some cross training, cycling, or even swimming, if you're into that. But if not, you know, great day to go on a hike, you know, maybe put a rucksack on, put some load in there, 15, 20 pounds, depending how big you are, um, 10 pounds if you're smaller. And just move your body continuously for two, three, four hours. Another way just to create, and it's much less pounding walking than running, but aerobically you're going to get going. 
the load adds to the component of work on the heart and you're going to get your heart rate up but it's more muscular and gradual and enjoyable and different and you can go with your friends or a partner or so forth so again a great way to create i just created a 36 hour 40 hour window where you got in 50 miles of running a three four hour hike tons of work you know three and a half plus the six is nine and a half plus an hour and a half at night is 11 plus a three hour hike that's a 14 hour training window in you know two and a half days <laughs> so um those are examples so i hope that helps but that's how those um plans would work and i i think of double run days double run days of course the standard definition is you know one in the morning one at night the morning i usually tend to do some work and shorter and quality and in the afternoon i tend to prescribe brain off it's after work it's after a day of the variety of inputs whether you're working as a mom with family and requirements and needs and children and cooking and house and so forth, full-time job. Um, you're tired in the afternoon, so doing that, as well as if you have a full-time job working in, an, in a um, work function office setting, you come home and you're just like, ugh, I need to exhale. So I don't like to put too much mental um, fatigue, not mental fatigue, mental demands on the workout the prescription for the afternoon on days like that if we did our work in the morning sometimes we're not able to do something in the morning you start early or you're just not a morning person you never get the quality in as good as you want it you're more an afternoon person so be it that's everybody's different but that's how i'm looking at the load you do many days of doubles well then you can move that to the afternoon or the morning because your afternoon quality right that short sleep cycle and recovery to the morning is the same thing as if you did morning evening so you do evening morning to do the same format of easy or quality aerobic brain off versus focused um, intervals prescription workload so that's how it works wow i really need to get better about not using or moving the microphone and things getting louder each time I hit stop or pause on the recording. Um, all right, on to the next email question. I'm going to bounce back and forth between some older emails and some newer ones just to keep things current as well. Um, hi, Chris. I hope your ribs are healing up and you're able to get back to training. I actually have been. Um, had my first swim the other day and I'm starting to feel better. And um, obviously, I can cycle. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, running is starting to come back as well. Um, not going anything too long. I'm going to build ever so gently from what is about an hour, hour and 15 minutes now to hopefully up to two-ish hours on the trails in the next two, three weeks. Um, and then... Well, it looks like a, a gradual build into the new year. I think I'm putting together uh, some race ideas for 2020. Um, one of them being heading down to Patagonia um, for a 100-mile run there, Ultra Trail World Series. And then I'm also concocting an idea around Swim Run Catalina, Attilo Catalina. I'm thinking 
I'm thinking I might swim back. So I'm working out the details and the logistics right now and a boat and a few other pieces there, but um, it would be fun to um, swim back at that time of year um, from Catalina back to Palos Verdes, LA, and um, do some ocean swimming. Not sure yet how that's going to come together, if it will all work out, but that's the thought right now. Race, swim, run. Have a fun day and afternoon there because it's a shorter race. It's not an all-day race like Attila World Championships. And then um, the next day, either swim back in the morning um, based off the winds and the currents or if it's like they talk about needing to swim at midnight in through the night in order to avoid the afternoon winds um, in the channel. Now, the interesting thing about that is I'm hoping in March, um, late February, early March, that the winds aren't the same as the usual windows of July, August, September, October, even into November when most people swim the channel. Um, so it, it depends on the weather conditions and so forth. Now, you might be saying, well, the water is going to be pretty cold. I'm not looking for any type of certification or validation with regards to the Catalina swim. So if I end up needing to do it in a wetsuit, I will. Um, you know, my swimming days are long done <laughs> that I'm looking for any type of, you know, you did the Catalina swim, but you did it in a wetsuit and therefore it's not, you know, an official swim. Well, I'll feel pretty good about it if I do swim run and then wake up the next day and swim back. I, I, <laughs> I won't be too concerned about the official federation of open water swimmers or Catalina Swim Federation or all any of that not um, recognizing my swim. So I'm not good in being cold for 10 to 12 hours. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to be wearing a wetsuit either way. And um, yeah, and my Roca is comfortable enough that I feel very fine wearing it for 10 to 12 hours. So maybe I'll even do it in the swim run suit that I will wear at um, Catalina, So, uh, which would be interesting because it gives you a little bit more um, open skin space so that you don't overheat, but um, flexible because you're obviously doing plenty of swimming. And, you know, might work great with regards to being just enough to stay warm for that many hours. So... We shall see. But anyway, yeah, I am healing. Um, I'm fine with you using any detail of this email on your podcast or wherever else you care to. <clears throat> I've decided that my big scary goal for 2020 is to ride my bike from my front door to the start of a 50k foot race, race, and then ride home. <clears throat> Excuse me. The run portion I am comfortable with. It's the mixing in bike training that I'm not sure how to approach. I'm currently not much of a cyclist with maybe three hours a week on the bike. At best, I'm hoping to do more than just finish the 50K, but I'm pretty solidly a mid-pack competitive in my age group runner. I'll be 36 on race day. I do not expect a podium. Setup. The race is Friday, March 15th, land run 50K in Stillwater, Oklahoma. I'd ride the 85 to 95 miles to Stillwater Thursday, set up camp about 10 miles from the starting line, nearest place to camp, ride to the start, then race Friday morning, 
Saturday is the Land Run 100 gravel race, which I would hang out, cheer the racers on, eat, recover, and just enjoy the day. Sunday, I'd ride the 85 to 95 miles home for a rough total of 200 miles of riding and 31 miles of running in a four-day window. Sounds like a fun adventure. Now, Brian, in this case, it would be really epic if you also did that enduro, that gravel race. <laughs> Talk about a crazy weekend. But uh, let's let's look at it this from a different perspective. Um, and he, you write here, my bike is an all-road type bike with 700 tires and enduro ge- geometry, if it matters. Um, the interesting thing is there, why even ride there? I know there's that part of the adventure, but you have an opportunity to do that double and maybe gravel ride, do the gravel ride and then ride home from there, maybe get a ride there somehow. Same outcome in the volume of miles, but you do that epic double. Just an idea. Um, Background, this will be my fifth ultra. I've run 250Ks, 250 milers in 2019. My training is five days a week running. Three easy zone two runs, one tempo or hill repeat, one Z2 long run where I usually mix in some strides or a few miles of tempo pace. Yeah, good. Volume varies depending on what I'm training for. I peaked 12 hours of running before the Colorado race. Average is probably about seven hours of running, two hours of cross training on my bike after a short run on Sunday. One full rest day per week. Excellent. No kids and my wife can tolerate about 12 hours a week of me being gone. We're getting her a bike so she can join in on the training so I could possibly have more time to train if she, if she is involved. Okay, tra- job is standard eight to five. Three-legged stool is currently pretty balanced. I like that. You gave me all the details and then current three, <laughs> three-legged stool is currently pretty balanced. Um, my bike... Um, enduro geometry question how would you mix in more time on the bike and what should my bike volume look like i will have an indoor trainer and i can bike commute when the weather cooperates oklahoma weather is pretty awful most of the time but that's only six miles each way should i do a bike run bike friday saturday sunday do doubles with an hour trainer ride in the a.m and my usual runs p.m long endurance rides or shorter type tempo work how about fueling on the ride to the race, what should that look like? I don't have any experience when it comes to how to train for anything cycling related. Thank you for everything you give to the endurance community. Your podcast was the inspiration behind me wanting to do something that scared me in 2020. And riding 200 plus miles in four days plus racing and ultra is certainly out of this runner's comfort zone. All right, Brown, Brian. Sorry, um, his last name is Brownlee, so therefore it's Brian Brownlee. Um, fun. So first of all, great. I love it. You're curating your own adventure, which is a huge component into make this all more fun than it already is. But having something that's personal to you and that defines, not necessarily defines you, sorry for that term, um, that um, allows you to have your own personal adventure that qualifies as you're the only one doing it. It's awesome. I, I love that. Um, and again, combining it with an event and making it more challenging, daunting, scary is great, as well as integrating it with your current life. Sounds good. So 
Well, um, if you want to look at it like I've talked about before on the podcast, go backwards from what you want to achieve in simulation, which would, is then based off of what you want to achieve in quasi-event. The big component here is that you will have a rest and recovery day before your return bike ride. So that will be good to refuel and to reset um, so that when you leave on Sunday morning to return back from that event, you will be stocked up on fuel and hydration. So energy levels should be pretty decent. Um, now, of course, you're going to be sore and fatigued from the event, from the race, which we don't want to shortchange because, again, you don't want to just get through it. You want to still do your best. And so 85 to 95 to get there becomes the next component. You don't need to, again, do 85 to 95 in simulation to know that you can do 85 to 95 rested that week um, for the event. So I would think about training up to 60, 60-ish miles, 100K. And if you do that in simulation, get to that. And then let's say do the next day, do a 20-mile run, max, your big run. And then maybe the following day, a 35, 40-mile bike. That's plenty. That gets you very close. Again, percentages up to what the full event is. Um, rested your 60 to 60 ish miles of cycling will feel comfortable until 85. It's just, it is what it is knowing that it's the event and that you have, um, you're, you're taking care of yourself and you've rested will make 65 tired, feel like 85 fresh. So something to keep in mind there, 20 ish miles running the next day. Obviously you know how to get ready for a 50 K. And then the 35 to 40 the next day in the simulation, again, not, you don't need to do the full event. You just want to get home on that Sunday. And once you're 40-ish, 50 miles into the event on, for that Sunday, um, you will be smelling the barn and excited and feel good about finishing and fin completing your adventure. Plus, you have that extra day of rest. So by simulating it the day after your 20-ish mile run, maybe even 22 miles, 23 miles of running, um, the fact that you're doing it the day after on tired legs will make it have an effect like as if you took a day off and rode only and rode 85. So you see the concept here. So now that we know where we want to simulate and where we're starting from, where we want to get to, and where we're starting from is obviously here. That's how you want to build into your training weeks. Now, of course, your ideas here are, are applicable. Um, so doing a morning indoor trainer, absolutely with some quality. And then the evening, just doing an, a zone two easy run. Like I talked about earlier, multiple um, events requires just a good repeatable format so that you can start monitoring your fitness and your progress. Um, I'm, I'm missing a strength component in here. I would love to see you have a strength component in there because, again, the load on the body for three days, you'll want to be, be sure that your joints and ligaments and everything around that is strong enough to handle that. So think about a strength component. 
how would you mix in more time on the bike and what should the bike volume look like? So knowing that those are the simulations we want to get to, maybe you can do two or three of those because you have some time until March. So then um, I would think about, you know, in maybe doing one in February and one in January. Now, of course, not quite very comfortable in Oklahoma in January and February. So a lot of this will have to be done on the trainer. But, you know, um, a 60-mile bike on the trainer is like three and a half hours. So not that bad um, for an indoor ride. That's, you know, two movies or a couple weeks of any type of binge show you're watching. Um, so, yeah, doing two or three of those or maybe finding a weekend or maybe going somewhere for a weekend where you can simulate it might be a great idea too, driving south from Oklahoma to southern Texas or over to Arizona. It might be worth it um, in order to test your fitness and do a simulation weekend, right? Like, you know, President's Day weekend in February heading to uh, Arizona. Um, the commute, I would not necessarily do. Six miles isn't really enough. Um, should I do a bike, run, bike, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Yep, I talked about that. Um, and I, and you can start pretty easy. You know, I would do a bike of, you know, 90 minutes. Then, you know, your standard long run that you're doing for your experience of past 50Ks and 50 milers. And then on Sunday, do another bike. Um, or you can even do a combo on Sundays. What I've talked about in the past on the podcast is, you know, maybe you do the bike, uh, another 90-minute bike on Sunday morning, and then do some um, leg turnover because you've already warmed up and fatigued, not necessarily fatigued, but you've activated on the bike, and then get off the bike, fuel, like get some food in you, get some hydration in you, nothing crazy, and then start running. Um, it'll feel great, and do some leg turnover, let's say, um, in include three times 10 minutes where you increase your run cadence by 10 over the 10 minutes. And that's not easy to do. You know, let's say you start at 82 and you try to get to a run turnover of 92. Easier to do on a treadmill because it's monitorable and you can um, um, adjust quickly. Um, out on the road, usually it takes a little bit longer to get that system down because, you know, you got to change your stride and really turn it over and find the right road but it's a, a very effective workout but then you grow from there you know hour and a half turn into two two and a half stick to your run volume the way you've planned in the past for 50ks and 50 milers and then uh, again do another longer gradually getting longer bike the next day for sure um long endurance rides or shorter tempo type work you know, um, you're stimulating the system well enough. And again, you're not looking to do the 85 to 95 fast. You're just looking to get from point A to point B on that uh, Friday before the event. Um, exactly. Um, and then race Friday morning. Exactly. So um, you're looking to get to the event, to your campsite, 10 miles away on one day. So you don't need speed work and tempo work. Um, it's not going to make you feel that much better and your strength and your legs are good enough from the work you did a cycling and b running and c strength work hopefully that that's plenty um, you're not looking to do it in four and a half five hours it's probably going to take six or seven hours 
which is fine. You want to conserve energy. You want to enjoy it. You want to fuel and hydrate, get to your campsite, feel good, feel like it didn't take that much out of you, recover, eat, fuel, rest, regenerate, wake up the next morning, ride those 10 miles very easy, easy gear, high cadence as your warm up to the race. So that'll probably take about 45 minutes to get there. Um, you know, lock the bike up, do your event, crush it, and then come back from there um, the next day. Again, it'll be important to regenerate and rebuild. And, and again, on Sunday, when you're riding home, you're in no hurry. So don't look to make it faster than you need to be. You want to thrive, not just survive. And this is exploring versus expectations, right? These are my new terms, exploration versus expectation. I love that, that my athlete gave me. Um, and it's a perfect example here. You don't want to have expectations around the cycling. You probably want to have expectations around the running because that's what you're familiar with and you have lines in the sand for it. But explore on the bike. Take your time. You've got nowhere to be. You created this adventure. Enjoy it. You want to get through it as efficiently as possible using the least amount of energy in order to prep for the next day and your event. And on the way home, you're done. You just got to get home, <laughs> get home to a nice warm cooked meal and a regular bed. So I hope I answered that. Um, I think most of that's covered. How about fueling on the ride during, to the race? What should that look like? Well, your effort level is going to be pretty low, hopefully, um, and you'll be able to just move your way across 85 to 95 miles. And therefore, you know, Stay up on, on top of it, you know, so that you never get depleted. 200 to 250 calories an hour, plenty of hydration. So you get there and you're not ravenous and you're not hungry when you finish, but that you can just sort of set up camp, get situated, get sorted, get relaxed, have your dinner maybe an hour or two later, go to bed and feel good about the whole energy output for the day. Um, the fueling doesn't have to be that complicated. And a good breakfast, good dinner, and maintaining a full bathtub in between, you're great. You should be fine. As, as well as coming home, um, you'll probably risk and throw a little bit more caution to the wind because you're past your event and you just have to get home. So you might eat a little less, especially on the back end, because you're going to be home and have that warm cooked meal available because you've been taking care of the three-legged stool and your wife will be excited that you're home, finished, successfully completed your adventure. You included her in that adventure the entire time, checked in with her, made sure she had a sense of accomplishment around the team that you built in order to do this. And therefore, that three-legged stool of yours will be very, very happy, complete, balanced, and you walk in that door She's proud of you, you're proud of you, you're proud of you guys doing it together, and you go to work on Monday to that um, 8 to 5 that you wrote, and you just feel like, you know what, that was an awesome four days, and I'm so stoked I did it, and again, I lived an endurance adventure, so exactly what I was talking about earlier. All right, I'm going to dive into an older one. Now, the problem on these older ones is that I'm answering them probably after the effect. Oh no, actually this is September 2nd, 2019. So this is more an elite uh, question, but it's always fun to have all kinds of uh, 
perspectives when it comes to the podcast. Hi, Chris. I I trust you are well. I have a question for your weekly word podcast, if I may. This summer, summer, I have completed my first Ironman distance by mostly self-coaching myself, 948 in Roth. 104, 516, 315, my first marathon. And I'm looking for the next big challenge. Now, before I even read any further, that's pretty awesome. First Ironman distance, 948. Now, Roth is a fast course. It's a world champ, world record course. But anytime you go that time, it's still doing the distance, and it's pretty solid. 104, 516, 315. So clearly running is this guy's strength. The fact that you can run a 315 marathon, his first marathon, on the back end of a 516 and 104, so let's say a 620, 630 um, day, that far in, in, I'm meaning, that's uh, fantastic. So um, at first glance, I'll take a look at that swim, some minutes there, and probably some minutes on that bike. One of my triathlon-related dreams would be a sub-9. Ooh, a big jump. That 45 minutes will be hard to find. Um, and I say that not necessarily because it's that it's hard in that respect, but it's more when you start with that small margin of error, um, the exponential returns are very small. Um, what I've found is that the 945 range, whether with me as well as with many of my athletes, seems to migrate to the 930, 920 to 935 range for a couple of Ironmans. It becomes hard to really crack that next nut, which is 9 to 920. <clears throat> Excuse me, man, I have got a itchy throat. Not necessarily sickness, but just voices cracking. Um, and then you play around the 9 to 920 range where you know... Some small decisions had consequences to put you over nine. Um, so the times I went uh, sub nine, 838 uh, once, and a couple of 850s, once in Kona, once in Texas, once in um, Germany, and once in, hmm, I don't remember, somewhere fast and flat too. Um, is uh, has always been around a very fast run, luckily, and um, sort of a relaxed bike that was sort of with tailwinds or a flat course or, uh, sort of worked out that way. My most recent one, which was Ironman Texas uh, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, uh, three, four years ago, was, you know, the swim went extremely well. You know, um, I'm lucky I have 15 minutes there on this guy. So I swim around a 50. But then the bike, you know, I had to stay relaxed. I had to allow myself to set up the run, um, the best possible run. And so finding a space where you're relaxed, efficient, arrow, and focused, fear, um, and then sort of allowing that to happen. And what I mean by allowing that to happen, the hard part about going fast on the bike while not compromising the run is sort of blindly trusting your fitness trusting your bike fit, trusting your output, trusting your fuel and hydration, and then sort of 60-ish, 75 miles into the bike ride, getting a sense of what the day will present itself. And I've talked about this a few times on the podcast when it comes to um, 
you know, strategizing your Ironman, even at the pro level, that becomes, you know, you're going to see and get a sense of what your day will be, you know, uh, about, you know, six, five-ish hours into your day. Um, that includes the swim. And so you don't lose an Ironman on the swim, but it definitely, um, you know, excuse me, <laughs> you don't win an Ironman on your swim, but it definitely affects your um, outcome with regards to placing on the back end by being too slow. What I mean by that is, no, you're not going to win an Ironman by swimming a 48 or a 47, but you're not you're, you're going to lose an Ironman or what you want to achieve by swimming 105 or 110. So there's got to be a space there. And then you get as far into the bike for me and also how I coach, get as far into the bike on doing your work, your focus, your wattage, your heart rate, your fueling, your hydration, your output, your strategy, your aero position, your staying relaxed, your pedal stroke, your um, um, energy usage, right? Are you standing a lot? Are you staying aero? Are you um, pushing the hills? Are you staying relaxed on the hills? Are you sitting up on the hills and using that time to fuel and hydrate and staying aero on the flat sections? Depends on the course, depends on the winds, depends on the temperatures, all that. But so that you're, like I said, 60 to 70 miles in before you get a sense of "Mm, this day might go pretty well. And then you get to like 85, 90. In Texas, I remember you get back into the woodlands, sort of from out being way out into the boonies um, and doing a loop out there, that you get back into sort of the woodlands and you turn back into the community. You have like 15 miles to go, you know, maybe a bit more. I don't remember right now. 20 miles maybe and then you can start projecting you're like oh i'm at 95 or i'm at 100 or i'm at 90 and you can see you know i feel pretty good i'm on top of my fueling and my hydration i can project that this will be a 450 bike whatever um a five hour bike um and then knowing that you didn't compromise your running ability that becomes a big uh, not only insight but confidence booster because you're you're moving and you're like wow I, I I'm sort of ahead of who I thought I would be today, or this is unfolding how I envisioned it, and now I can go out and have the best possible run. Now it's just down to me and my running legs, and that's a great position to be in if you're racing an elite um, level um, Ironman, because. Just having no more questions about a mechanical or a flat tire or how will I be feeling this late into the event sets up you and your will and your ability to run well. Um, I used to always do it that I knew I was having a good day if I would get out of transition two in under six hours. Um, Whether in Kona or whether at some high-end Ironmans, and what I mean by high-end Ironmans is that where I had put a focus on wanting to be in the top 10 or whatever. Um, so I would focus my day and my strategy and my how I would ride the course around how do I get out of tra- T2, start the watch of the run in under six hours. If there's a five in front of that number, I'm going to have a good day. Um, now, how far under six hours that's become, right? That becomes the, the ultimate question. But um, swimming around 50 
and then biking around five puts me at 550 without transition. So therefore, now the day can be successful. If I swim with 50, have longer transitions, and I bike 510, you know, at 605, 610 out of transition two, that makes things a little bit more difficult to, to go, you know, close to nine hours. Because then you're going to have to run sub three or three flat. And that that's a hard thing to do if you're already not in the right position because of probably your output or how you're feeling or your fitness or something um, in strategy or fueling and hydration went wrong on the bike to make you slower anyway. So anyway, I uh, digress. One of the triathlon-related dreams would be a sub-9. However, looking at those times, I feel like this might be a very long journey. <laughs> That's funny. That's what I was just saying. Um, my background is in track and field, road running, 10K 34, half marathon 118, and road cycling since I was 12. I'm 31 now. So I'm thinking of improving my time for those events first as relative, relatively quick wins, for sure. I'm wondering if you could say what specific predispositions must a person have to complete a sub-9 Ironman? What might a healthy and sustainable journey look like? Wow. Those are some um, open-ended questions. Again, Marek, um, these are questions of how you train, what you train, what your background is, what your load was for this iron distance, where there might be some low-hanging fruit that we can fix, adjust from there, what kind of strength component, what kind of preseason slash off-season, what kind of lead-up did you do, was this a 16-week, a 20-week, a six-month build, um, what did you do to get ready for it, a half Ironman, what kind of running, I mean, there's so many questions there. And so it's hard to get a good sense of that. But I do agree you continue to work on your strengths. Now, if I take that Roth time and break it down, you need better time on the front end, right? Because that 315, if you can keep that as steady as possible and now mess with the front end of your Ironman, then you have something really special um, that you can work with. So you can say, all right, well, I can do a 315 despite biking 455. Um, I can run a 315 despite swimming harder and biking about five or 10 minutes faster. So let's say you swim harder, you practice more swimming and you get better at swimming. You swim with 59, but you have a bigger output for it. And you bike a 510, right? So now five and one, that's six. 10-ish with transition 615, 618 maybe. So if you then can still run a 315, which again highlights your fitness, now you're talking 930. And you get a better understanding of what you can do. Because you might be a faster runner than 315 come the next Ironman. But because you're going faster on the front end, still running the same time validates your fitness. So don't just look at it, look at it oh, I'm not running faster. I'm not running faster, but I'm running the same time because I worked harder on the front end. I'm more fatigued coming out of T2 because I risked things a little bit differently. The other thing I would do around this and I would have a conversation with you about is how do you want to set up an Ironman where you really risk a lot? 
So first building supreme outstanding fitness where you feel like you're fitter than ever before running as well, not 10K speed or half marathon speed, but well enough to feel good about your running fitness, quite connected that if you had to, you could quickly add some speed and some specific speed work training to go back to 118 running or 120 running half marathon. So that type of fitness. And then also having a a road cycling slash TT bike fitness that is way better than ever before. From that, I would then say, all right, I'm going to do two Ironmans over the next five months. And the first one, I'm really going to throw caution to the wind, which means uh, is American for going harder and really risking a lot and not worried about the outcome. So let's say then you, you, you bike a 455. Well, let's see how that hits your running and get a better understanding around that. But knowing that you can run a 315 and being really fit, if you can bike a 455, let's say that's 20 minutes faster and still run a 315. And let's say you swim about the same because you really want to risk the bike this time because this was clearly a conservative race for you to still be able to run a 315. Um, that would be interesting to find out. You need to learn now where your tolerances are and then to do a full-on assault, build, approach, focus on a sub-nine. And again, like you said, it will be a long journey. The chunks breaking off will be smaller, but can you? Sure. This looks, I mean, there's tons of promise there for you. Um, But again, the hard part is knowing what kind of training you did for this and how long you trained and hours and volume and intensity and zone two or zone three or your past cycling experience. Did you train for it like a road racer? Things like that. And then going from there. So, but yeah, um, so uh, one last thing. So a, a nine hour Ironman is sort of in the range that I was talking about. Um. A well-balanced nine-hour Ironman, for those of you interested, is about a 55 swim, a 450 bike, and a 310 run. Um, that's, so that's how you want to think about it in general, when you, when you put components together. So what I mean by that is, can I take my bike and my run, in your case, Mark, since you're a biker and a runner, can I put them together and set myself up with in your case, you'd want it to be eight hours. That should be your next goal. My bike plus my run being eight hours. Because then um, swim, let's say, is an hour. Now you're at nine. Transitions, nine, ten. So it gets you close. And then you can start working on the very minute details to find those last ten minutes. One being swimming. But um, that's how I would look at it. So a 450 and a 310, there you go, eight hours. Um, that's, and then swimming a 55, right? 855 transitions, boom, right now. That's a well-balanced, well-raced Ironman. Now, can you do a 305? Probably. And that buys you then a 455 bike. Now you're back to eight hours, but I would focus first on getting that eight hour back end component, not worrying too much on the swim because you can always address that later. Once you figure it out, eight hours, <laughs> and then because you have the eight hours figured out, then 
the one hour of swimming isn't going to take that much more energy out of you. And in general, for a lot of you, whether you're a beginner or an elite Ironman racer, the, the key there is swimming is such a short time frame of your Ironman that you can always come back and work on that and improve that, but do the bigger piece first. So if you're looking to go under 12 hours at an Ironman, well, then you got to run bike six and run four, right? Get those 10 hours out of the way. Um, or excuse me, let's say you run 6.15 and 4.30, right? Now you're at 10.45. Now you can swim an hour and 15, an hour and 20 and get close. So you've got to get the back half component down, pacing, execution, strategy, fueling, hydration, fitness, strength, durability to do that. And then you're ready to go. So good question though. And, um, I'd be curious to hear more, Mark, on your fitness and your lead up in order to help give you better insights for this. I have a few concepts that I want to cover this week as well on questions that my athletes ask me. And again, we're 117 or 118 episodes in. And some of the things that came up on the early episodes might not be archived or easily um spotted if you look at a um, the list of the podcast but one of the things is missed workouts and a lot of athletes that start with me wonder with regards to missed workouts on what it means and when to try to fit it in when not to me a missed workout is a missed workout I'd rather focus on the next best possible workout versus trying to think about how I can pull the one that I missed and integrate it into the rest of the week now, of course, if this is a Tuesday workout and the back half of your week lines up a little bit better or frees up, then you can think about those type of um, reintegration of that workout, how it might fit with regards to quality, with regards to um, volume and so forth. But to me, the week and the training overall is best suited and absorbed and adapted and grown from when you do the best possible next workout, um, next session, next prescription, next desired outcome, because then you're building momentum on something positive versus thinking about how this is actually a makeup workout and now I still have to execute the other one really well as well. Um, and again, we want to stay away from that gray zone, you know, not training effectively, training too easy on the focused, harder, um, high quality, high effort days, or training too hard to um, deliberate pushing and forcing it too hard on easy days that are supposed to be active recovery, um, really connecting with the body. That's the thing that many overlook too, is, is there's a reason for that easy workout, for that easy spin, for that easy jog, for that easy swim. It's to slow down, and reconnect and really feel what your body is doing. Cycling, your pedal stroke, your circles, how your ankle and foot sweep and roll over the pedal stroke on each side if you're mashing and pushing down too hard versus pulling and sweeping up and pulling up. Whether you have a balanced equal force pedal stroke, that can be done when you're cycling easy. If you're always um, pushing hard and trying to, you know, 
mash out the next best PR or highest possible wattage or notification that you've hit a new threshold, well, your quality and your technique is truly going to suffer. So use the easy days to do better, cleaner, smarter, technically sound fundamentals in the sport that you're working on. When you're running, how's my posture? How's my upper body? What are my arms doing? How's my core engaged? How am I landing? How am I pushing off? Where am I landing? How far is my stride kicking up behind me? How are my knees driving? All those things are part of things that you can think about when you're running easier, not focused on looking at your watch or heart rate and all that. And same thing swimming. So much technique waiting to happen when you are on a easier swim when you're focused on things like that so um things like that sorry not to drift off things like technique fundamentals reach pulling through the stroke depth of your stroke bending at the elbow you know recovery of your arm out of the water leading with the elbow um, and so how you're rotating, how you're postured and positioned in the water, what your head is doing, how you're kicking, what your hips are doing, all that, all part of swimming. And we can only do that on easy days. So missed workouts, I know a lot of um, athletes stress about missing a workout. But again, you're doing your best, right? Um, you all went pro in something other than this sport. And you're doing your best. I mean, if you're getting stressed about missing a workout, that's already clearly a sign that you care because you're stressed about missing the workout. So that's a good thing. Turn that to a positive and realize, okay, this is very meaningful to me. I really want that result in the future. So I know I need to invest in today. But if it didn't work out, there's other things as we've talked about that you can do in order to have the next best workout. Fueling, recovery, sleep, prepping your um, intentions for tomorrow um, or for the next workout. Reading up on how you want to execute that workout. Your course, envisioning how you want to execute it as well. I mean, there's a hundred different things you can think about in order to be successful on the next workout when you've missed the current workout. But most of all, I would say get ahead on your work, get ahead on the three-legged stool, and get some good sleep. Go to bed early and wake up and go, I'm ready to crush this day. Work, family, and also those workouts that are important and that you see a sense of urgency and clarity and intention and purpose on why you're doing it because you were stressed about missing it. So um, that's that. I had a consult this morning with an athlete and it was interesting as we were going through his test data and his uh, VO2 max test lab data um, and sort of his history, we determined that he was actually training too easy. And that happens too. And many um, are surprised when they realize they're the, the, not the few, but they're in that category of those that need to work stronger, not harder stronger and at a higher effort level versus too easy. And this is a confusing topic. But in this case, I didn't record the consult because A, we had a crappy connection and B, we've done a fair amount of consults lately. I want to sort of take a break from that with regards to putting it on the podcast. But in this case, we determined that this athlete was training 
about 10 beats below zone two. And so his familiarity, and, and no, his efficiency and his economy of running is good enough that he actually has to run faster in order to get into zone two. Now, of course, that's going to change a lot of things with regards to his recovery, with regards to his caloric needs, with his metabolism, with his um, planning for the week on how he puts the sessions together, because they're going to, there's going to be a cumulative effect of that new higher heart rate zone and working a tick harder. Now, because it's his zone two, and because it is based off the tests, he did two field tests and a VO2 max test over the last three months. So we had plenty of data. Um, because of that, and that work, it's going to have an effect cumulatively, of course, but it is still zone two. So despite the more focused, stronger work and the effort, um, he'll recover almost as quickly. Now, there'll be a transition time of a few weeks where that zone two will wear on him and he won't recover as quickly as he used to when he was training about 10 beats too low, but he'll get to a point where it's just as fast and it actually will feel normal. His running stride and his gait and how his foot hits the ground will change because of that increase in speed and lightness and specificity in that case. And so, yeah, it does happen. And there are definitely a fair amount of athletes that need to run, cycle, swim, overall train, stimulus um, higher than they thought. Zone two does not necessarily mean easier for many people. Um, I noticed just now on the coast drive that my zone two, I needed to pay attention to keep it up. Now, it was usually in the right space, but there were definitely days as the fatigue sets in and, you know, the heart rate wants to go lower. It wants to protect itself. It wants to hold back. It wants to slow you down. It wants to sort of rebuild itself. I had to work a bit harder, a bit stronger in order to maintain a steady speed output, not get dropped. <laughs> so, yeah, quite common, and um, but always, not always, but quite frequently surprising to the athlete that they have to go faster in order to stay in zone two. All right, I think that'll do it for this week. Not I think, that's about two hours into this podcast. And it's pretty amazing because I still have about an inventory of 25-ish emails to get through. And the entire goal here, of course, is to build this community build our exchange of questions and thoughts and ideas and events and learning and application as best we can. And sure, I might be the narrator here on this podcast, but it is your input. It is your questions. It is where you're taking this um, in the form of your questions and your feedback that I know how to continue to push on into this podcast so that there's value for all levels. Um, as we saw today, you know, when you're talking about a sub nine Ironman goal, that's a pretty elite iron uh, level of triathlete. And then, but also, I want as many people as possible to give endurance athletics and that lifestyle with it a whirl, a try to see how it works for them, to see how it helps their body because of the steadier, lower intensity going long aspect as well as 
um, how our energy systems work from that fat burning versus carb burning and you know the longevity of doing events out in nature and taking advantage of that <clears throat> excuse me um, that all adds up to me being so excited and um, committed to continuing to do this podcast for all of you the listener and the community is growing not that I pay attention to the numbers but it looks to be that we are growing this community ever so gently and again I'm not doing this for any kind of type of numbers I've already had enough feedback just in my, from my athletes alone that they have a better understanding of what I look for in coaching explaining some of the things that don't really come across in the training peaks um, delivery of the workouts and from there that that makes this podcast already successful the fact that there's a few thousand more of you listening and pulling tidbits of information and application and tips out of this is great and I, I truly enjoy that and so on that note I wanted to close this week also with a quote that I read from Seneca because I do some daily reading of Stoic um, literature and philosophy and so forth. And I really thought this one always fits our endurance mindset and lifestyle pretty well. You should assume that there are many things ahead you will have to suffer. Is anyone surprised at getting a chill in winter or getting seasick while on the sea or that they get bumped walking a city street? The mind is strong against things it has prepared for. And that's what we're doing. We're preparing our body for things that are not expected. What is likely to happen? What could go wrong? What can possibly happen? As he writes, what are the tortures that life inflicts on human beings? And then, more importantly, am I ready for them? Have I strengthened my weaknesses, my blind spots? Do I have what it takes to endure this suffering? A lot of philosophers talk about the, the endless suffering as, as human beings. Heck, Jordan Peterson writes a whole book of 12 basic rules for life around that suffering. But again, as we prepare ourselves for our suffering, our physical suffering, how are we setting ourselves up to minimize that, to be prepared for it? It doesn't make it necessarily easier, but it doesn't surprise us. It allows us to embrace it, allows us to understand it, and to come up with more solutions as well as more um, resilience towards that suffering, especially in the endurance world. But that also carries on in so many ways to our daily lives and our mindset of knowing we're resilient, that we've worked through some difficult things in training. We've gone to the depths of our soul because of the difficulty of the training, some days in super hot conditions and running and just being miserable behind our hat and sunglasses, other days being exhausted on a bike and climbing and just the legs not wanting to turn over anymore. And it's not necessarily that your lungs are burning, you're just overall tired or swimming and you have nothing more to give, you're out of breath or you're fatigued and you just are low energy, um, even maybe bonking, 
Those are the things, those are the days, those are the notes we take in our training that then go deeper within us and then we remember in our daily lives we are resilient and we can and we should assume that there are many things ahead that we will have to suffer. So let's not get surprised by any suffering but instead let's embrace it, understand it and stand tall within it. And that's what that passage says to me. So yeah, that'll be it for this week. Thank you so much. As my 2020 roster is filling up and I'm seeing more and more cool events and amazing adventures that my athletes are planning on, and it's getting more and more extreme, not in the remoteness or in the difficulty, but more in the self-curated and cool adventures and different sports that they're taking on. And I plan to have a podcast as always going into 2020 with all the different adventures that my athletes are looking to do. And I'm feeling pretty good about all of them being successfully completed, um, ventured upon. And as you heard from this podcast, I too am excited to dive into some unique different things into 2020. But as we prepare for that, going into mid-October here, what are your desires or secret goals when it comes to endurance adventures? Let me know, and I'll be glad to discuss it anonymously, of course, here on the podcast. But that's what I'm curious about. What is it that scares you? What is it that really lights a flame for your uh, curiosity on what you are capable of doing? And hopefully I can provide some insight or a path to getting closer to that curiosity, those outcomes that, you know, in some cases fear and what scares us. And that's what this, that that's again what this podcast is about, that we can talk and toss things around that might be very intimidating, but creating a normalized path of training and mindset to getting that done. So have a great week, everybody. And I look forward to talking to you guys next week. It's uh, we got more emails, we got more training tips, and we got more thoughts. And of course, the usual musings of the three legged stool. Have a great week.